Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, where we are going to be looking together at verses 8 through 15 this morning. That is Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and you can find that passage either on page 1075 in your pew Bibles or on page 32 in your Acts journals. In the opening verse of chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we find what has certainly become a very familiar refrain about the continual growth of the church of Jesus Christ. We read there, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. In fact, you probably noticed last week that the verses we considered together had two very similar statements serving as sort of bookends to that passage. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6. Because we read then in verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Both these statements follow very real difficulties for the church of Jesus Christ, or at least very real distractions from their mission. They were att- there were attacks against the unity of the early church. And at the end of chapter 5, you will remember that it was an attack from without, from outside of the church. It was an attack made by the leaders of the temple to try to thwart the progress of the kingdom of God in an effort to protect their own counterfeit kingdom, the kingdom of men. Last week, we saw that our enemy, the devil, tried a different tactic after the attack from the outside of the church failed to thwart anything at all, and in fact served only to continue to propel the growth of the church forward. So Satan attacked from within. Dissension began to bubble to the surface, and a complaint arose against the leadership of the apostles. If you find yourself in disagreement with me that this could possibly be a satanic attack here at the beginning of chapter 6, I will, uh, I will remind you of what this complaint rose out of. The church is thriving in her mission here. The gospel is being faithfully proclaimed. The sick and the broken are flocking to the apostles in the hope of finding relief from the effects of sin that are all around them. The sick are being healed. Demons are being cast out. The blind are receiving their sight. The deaf are receiving their hearing. The lame are being made to walk and to leap and to praise the God who is. And it is in that very fertile soil that a complaint arises from within the church. A complaint that undoubtedly threatened the peace and the unity of the church. In the face of such power and grace all around them. A complaint. What makes it even more dangerous is the fact that it truly is a legitimate complaint. The Hellenist or Greek-speaking followers of Christ have made it known to the apostles that their widows were being neglected and left out of the daily distribution 
while the Hebrew, the Hebrew widows were being served faithfully. And people are beginning to get upset. People are undoubtedly feeling neglected, overlooked, perhaps even slighted. And I pointed out to you that today this kind of thing in the church almost always leads to division. And many times to even a, a mass exodus of those who are caught up in it and who eventually leave for greener pastures to one of the many other churches in their respective communities. Certainly here, though, the times are different. This oversight on the part of the apostles could lead very easily to an interruption in the unity of the church. So that's the conflict that arises. It's a complaint and it demands a quick solution. And the apostles, by the grace and providence of Almighty God, bring one. And I wanted us to see here that this really is exactly how these kinds of things should be handled in the church of Jesus Christ today. Because the problem was immediately dealt with. The complaint came not through the gossip mill, but directly from the offended party to the apostles themselves. No smear campaign was raised against them or their leadership. There were no charges of ill intent or the impugning of the motives of the apostles in their oversight regarding the Greek-speaking Jewish followers of Jesus and their widows. Those things or those types of things are never tools for unity, regardless of how they are justified. They only tear down and they never build up. Gossip and slander always seek to ruin the peace of the church of Jesus Christ. So if you're prone to that type of thing, wisdom says put an end to it. Your motive in taking part in gossip or slander are never pure and they're never coming from a good place. And the apostles take immediate responsibility for their failure. They say, you are right. We have failed here. However, the solution cannot be that we now divide our attention from the mission that Jesus Christ himself gave to us. We must still minister restoration to the broken and we must first and foremost testify that Jesus is indeed the Christ. We must. We were created for it. We need more help in the ministry of the kingdom. And so they instructed the congregation to choose seven men from among them. Seven men, all of whom needed to be men of good reputation, men who were full of the Holy Spirit, men who displayed the wisdom of God in their dealings with others. And they formed what I said looks like the first diaconate. And the congregation loved it. And the peace and unity of the church were maintained. However, we must not fail to see that there's more going on here than just complaints and how they're dealt with in the church of Jesus Christ. God's providence must be considered here. Because the problem with being too busy to properly administer the daily needs of all the widows in the church leads to the selection of these seven godly men, all of whom were Greek-speaking men. 
I showed you the similarities here with these men and they're being commissioned for the work through the laying on of the hands of the apostles with Joshua was commissioned through the laying on of the hands of Moses to lead the newly freed Israelites in the conquest of Canaan, the nations. These seven men are certainly going to be used by God to minister to widows. But they will also be used of God to take the glorious message of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. And the world will run into the everlasting and loving arms of Jesus. And all of that begins with one of the seven, Stephen, in the text that is before us this morning. So if you have not already done so, please turn with me in your Bibles and follow along as I read now from the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8 and reading through 15. Hear now the word of our Lord. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the good of Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful this morning for the light of your word, and we pray that as we go to it this morning, Father, you would give us clarity. That through the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes and ears to these things so that hearing them and seeing them, we would live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that one of the things that we need to see here right away is that Stephen's ministry bears at least some resemblance to the ministry of Jesus Christ, whom he serves. And Luke gets us right to it here. Without any real explanation of exactly what followed the ordination of these men to their office of facilitating at least some of the apostolic care burden in the church, we find that Stephen is being used of God much in the same way that the apostles themselves were. Luke tells us in verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. We are not made privy to the extent or even really an explanation of what those great signs and wonders were. 
I'm not sure we need to have it explained to us. More than likely, in the context, he's doing what the apostles were doing by the grace and the power of Almighty God. He is healing the sick and the infirm. He is casting out demons. He is expounding upon the wonderful truth of the gospel. He is testifying that Jesus Christ is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And undoubtedly, he's become a bit of a spectacle of his own. People are trying to get to him. Certainly, there are crowds gathering around him. And as is to be expected, he catches the eye and consequently raises the ire of some of those that are tied a bit closer with the temple and the Sanhedrin, the synagogue of the freedmen. They were also Greek-speaking Jews who had been themselves either enslaved by Roman conquerors or they were the sons of those who had been enslaved. And they disputed with Stephen publicly to no avail. They spread lies. They bore false witness against him. They tried him and they would eventually kill him. So we do not have to stretch anything very far to say there are most certainly many similarities to the ministry and life of Jesus Christ and Stephen. Because he too endured all these things. And I think that Luke wants us to see that. Because if we are to find our source of hope here in the narrative regarding the church's first martyr, then we need to ask ourselves why so many similarities exist. Why are the ministries similar at all? Is Stephen simply trying to suffer the same fate as his Lord? Is he merely copying what Jesus did as a means of sort of falling on his own sword? Is that it? I don't think so. If Jesus were just our moral example to be followed, then we would be left to wonder what redemption even is. No, redemption involved the giving of a perfect life. There had to be perfect, righteous blood. There had to be a perfect and righteous sacrifice. There had to be atonement made for those who cannot ever make it for themselves. So it's bigger than that. Then the question becomes, what are we supposed to see in these apostles? What are we supposed to see in a man like Stephen? There are several things we could focus in on here. We cannot possibly exhaust them all this morning or even in several Sunday mornings. But this morning, I want us to consider the source of the Christ-likeness of Stephen. And we are certainly going to be looking beyond mere behavior here. Stephen and his ministry, like Peter and John and their ministries, are Christ-like and that they are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. At least one of the things that we need to consider here is what it means that believers, followers of Jesus, are united to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. Faith that is the gift of God. 
And in the life of Stephen, much like that of Peter, that union shows up here in three very specific ways. Because of his union with his king, we see in Stephen the power, the wisdom, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look a little closer at each of them. First, we see in Stephen through his union to Jesus Christ, the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us here that Stephen was full of faith, or as most other manuscripts say, he was full of grace and power, and that he did great wonders and signs among the people. We saw the same thing in Peter. He was tethered to his Lord by a great faith given to him by God that through the power of the Spirit of God led to his great power being exercised even over the course of the natural order of things. It's what Jesus Christ himself was, full of grace and power. And by nature of their union with him by faith, it is now true of them. Stephen is exercising that power here to conduct the gracious work of the kingdom of God. The broken are being restored. The gospel is being faithfully proclaimed. And the sheep are flocking in droves to the word of the king. Undeniably, the kingdom is growing. I'm not going to follow a rabbit trail this morning as to the extent of that power for us right now. But I want us to see that what is true here of Stephen is true because of the nature of his being united to King Jesus. United to his life, his death, and his resurrection. The power is the Spirit of God. Faith brings us to Jesus and it allows us to take him at his word. And it shows us our desperate need to be saved. And then the Spirit guides us in all things. The Spirit is the power uniting us to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Stephen was full of the gifts of God's grace. And he was faithfully using those gifts for the work of restoration. Restoring sinners through pointing them to the righteous blood of Christ. Restoring physical brokenness through merciful and gracious healing. Pointing everyone to the power of King Jesus over all things. Filled with grace and power. Equipped to carry out the mission. Stephen is Christ-like. Beloved, have you ever considered the call to be like Christ? Not just like him in behavior, but to be Christ-like. Like him in power, in wisdom, in strength, in authority, in compassion. To be like him is to bear the fruit of his spirit living and working in you, making you more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, patient, kind, and good. Moving you towards things like gentleness and self-control. But also like him in other ways that are perhaps not so easy to swallow. 
used by many, like he was. Mocked like him. Hated like him. To be envied, questioned, doubted like him. To suffer like him. To even lose your own life because of your union with him. You see, Stephen was Christ-like in all those things. Filled with grace and power. Beloved, do you want to be Christ-like in all of those things? By the power of the Spirit of God, we do. And we will. He is the pearl of great price. When we find him, we would sell everything we have to have what he is. He is the field containing the treasure of inestimable value. And once we know of it, we would sell everything to purchase the field just so that we could own the treasure. What are you willing to give to be united to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? The second thing I see, think we see here is that Stephen was also filled with the wisdom of Jesus Christ by nature of his union with Jesus Christ. Do you see that here? Look at the way Luke describes it beginning in verse 9. Then there arose some, there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, before we dig into this wisdom here, I want to point out to you something about these freedmen or the synagogue of the freedmen here. I've already made note of what they were. However, it's important for us to see here that one of the places which they were from was Cilicia, which is home to Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, it's widely believed that he was part of this synagogue. And we know that he was there at this very trial. He will be there nodding his approval, even holding the coats of some of those who will stone Stephen to death for his faith. Undoubtedly, he was breathing out his venomous hatred for the gospel at this point in his life. And he will become a central player in the rest of the book of Acts. But looking at Stephen, we see wisdom that could not be bested because it was not the wisdom of men. The world could have the wisdom of men. This was the wisdom of King Jesus, the wisdom of the Christ. Stephen reasoned And he argued like Jesus. He is united to his life by faith. How do I know that? Again, we need to be reminded of something here in Luke's record of from his gospel in chapter 21. Jesus told the apostles that these things would be. We looked at this before Peter's first trial. After telling his disciples what would be, he says to them in verse 12 of 21. But before all these things. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. 
You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. It was true for Peter. And it is true for Stephen. And it is true for you and I, beloved. God's word proclaimed, even heard, in the power of the Spirit is powerful. It is transforming. This is the hand and the power of God here. Stephen is arguing with the wisdom of Jesus Christ. His words are the king's words. The judge of heaven and earth's words. And they are not ever resisted. And they are not ever dusted. Who could ever resist the power of his word. Again, Psalm 2 comes to my mind continually when I'm reading through this narrative of Acts. Why do the heathen nations rage? Why do they bother to ever stand before the God of heaven and earth and try in vain to resist what cannot possibly ever be resisted? It is the height of foolishness. We see here again the clashing of kingdoms. And of course, there's no contest. The kingdom of God always triumphs in the truth. Look at what the counterfeit kingdom of this world does when it's faced with the truth and the power of God's word. It runs to lies. What else can it do? It bears false witness because it cannot ever throw down the truth of the kingdom of God. Do you understand? Look with me here at the beginning, beginning with verse 11. They secretly induce men to say, we have heard him speaking blasphemous things against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they seized him and brought him before the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. All twisted words and lies. Why? Because the gospel was a threat to their way of life. The same reason so many have run and are still running today towards lies. They were not interested in knowing God or being known by God. They simply wanted things for themselves. They wanted power. They wanted reputation. They wanted control, not for others, for self. All other kingdoms are selfish kingdoms. Beloved, ask yourself this morning, what is it that you want 
and expect from this kingdom. Because if it's not the glory of Almighty God in the salvation and restoration of other image bearers just like you, then you'd better look again. Which kingdom has your full allegiance this morning? Because you're not halfway in one or the other. Only one leads to union with Jesus Christ by faith and salvation entirely, completely in and through him. Only one seeks to be like the king. Only one embraces the wonderful providence of Almighty God in all things. Only one is truly wise. And everything else is foolishness. Everything else is waxed fruit, faking. Which one is yours? Look at the accusations again, because we've seen them before. This time they get a little bit more specific. One wonders if these freedmen were not perhaps playing up to the Sanhedrin a bit in their supposed commitment to the customs of Moses in the temple. They are saying, understand, even they know that it is not true that Stephen blasphemes all that they hold so dear. God, the law, and the customs of Moses in the temple. They made it up. They twisted some of the truth and they have outright lied about other things. They even used the old, he's going to destroy the temple motif. The same one they used against Jesus. A twisting of his words. Again, beloved, they know that none of this is true. And yet, they pursue it for all that they are worth. Frantically, foolishly, fighting against the God who is. You understand? Gamaliel has been ignored. They are fighting God himself. And they are foolishly doing it, knowing that they are fighting God himself. But they're still clinging to what they want. God does something else in here, here in Stephen to show that he is united to or in union with his Lord by faith. Look at verse 15. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, steadfastly at Stephen, saw his face as the face of an angel. I love this. Let me point out that Stephen's face reflected the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the final thing we see here that is true of Stephen because he has been united to his king through faith. We see the king's glory. And it's great because we see it elsewhere in scripture. We just read about it this morning in Exodus 34. We know that story. God asked Moses to cut two new tablets of stone like the first ones which were shattered When Moses came down the mountain the first time and witnessed the debauchery of the Israelites worshiping the golden calf that they had made, God would then rewrite his law upon the new ones. And Moses was to warn everyone to keep themselves and even their animals away from the mountain 
lest they be consumed by God's holiness. So Moses went up Sinai again, and the Lord descended upon it, and he proclaimed his name there. Moses, tucked away in the cleft of a rock, saw just the back of God as he passed. And then Moses' face appeared to radiate the glory of God, but it, it didn't really radiate that glory because it did not come from within Moses. This was not Moses' radiant glory. It was the reflected glory of Almighty God. He had to wear a veil because of it. It was too much for the people. And here sits Stephen on trial for his life based on a web of lies full of grace and power, full of the wisdom of his Lord and King, patiently listening to false accusation after false accusation, watching these liars, these false witnesses, quietly receiving the charges, looking even kindly at the members of the council, the one in whose life, in whose hands, his life stood. Looking at them knowingly. Accusing him of going contrary to Moses and the law and his face like Moses before him reflects the radiant glory of Almighty God. Can you imagine? There's, there's irony here, right? And they don't release him. They see it. They see it reflected in his face. They know these are lies. And yet they are committed to their own destruction. Defying the very God they falsely claim to serve. And beloved, we must see the tragedy of sin here. Do you recognize its grip? Resistant to the point of destruction. Beloved, this is precisely why the Son of God had to die. Sin had damaged and marred the image bearers of God to the point of there being no one righteous, not one. Only sinners. And sinners cannot atone for sin. Jesus had to come and live obedient to the law of God in all things. He had to willingly go to his death at the cross where he paid the price for all of us. He had to rise again on the third day. He had to ascend triumphantly to the right hand of the Father to serve as our mediator and our advocate until He comes again and makes all things new. How long will sinners resist? For many of these men, the answer to that question is to the point of their death and the reception into the bowels of hell itself. That's the grip. 
Everything they see and hear and witness in this trial is an opportunity for them by the grace of God to run to Jesus. To throw down their burdens and to live in the sweet freedom of the king and his wonderful kingdom. However, for many of these, it only condemns them further. Their hearts remain hard enough to turn known lies into justifiable murder. Make no mistake. They hate the gospel because they hate the God who gave it. Because of his union with Jesus Christ, Stephen manifested the power and grace of God in ministering reconciliation and restoration to broken sinners living in a broken world. Because of his union with Jesus Christ, Stephen displayed the wisdom of Christ in pointing people to Jesus the Messiah as the true hope for all men. And because of his union with the king, Stephen's face glowed the reflected glory of King Jesus and gave him even the appearance of an angel to his accusers. And beloved, these things are true of you if you belong to King Jesus by faith. Take heart this morning. Your circumstances, your difficulties, your troubles, your sicknesses do not define you. Your broken relationships do not define you. Your less than righteous record does not define you. Your stumbles and falls, too many to count, do not define you. Even your previously stiff neck, even your being a troubler in Israel, does not define you. If your union to your Savior does. Do you understand? He is your identity. Do you know him? Will you run to him? Will you trust that he is all and much more than you will ever need? Beloved, by the grace of Almighty God, I pray that we will. And that we can worship him anew this morning as those who truly belong to King Jesus. Amen.